Hello, this is Mark Peacock, and welcome to the Travel Commons Podcast. This is Travel Commons Podcast number 189, recorded Thursday, September 22nd, 2022. This is the podcast giving the voice of the traveler. It's more about the journey than the destination. Two topics on this edition of the Travel Commons Podcast, when not to take the first flight out and why we travel. Coming to you today from the Travel Commons studios in the Gulch neighborhood of Nashville, Tennessee. Not a whole lot of travel since the last episode. Was back in Chicago after almost two months away. And I don't know, as a tourist this time, staying in a hotel just off of uh, the Michigan Avenue Mag Mile Strip, a neighborhood we'd actively avoided when we lived in Chicago. Too crowded, too many tourists. But now that we are tourists... Maybe it fits a little better. We ended up there more out of convenience, really, than anything else. It was the furthest point north in the city that I could find a place to burn off some Marriott points. But really, it's it's really been another one of those months where I've spent more time planning travel than doing it, stitching together the itinerary for an almost three-week trip, Nashville connecting through Chicago and then Frankfurt to split Croatia, then over to Rome, and then a train to Naples to get to Positano, staying there for a little bit, then back to Naples for a few days, then to Rome for a few days, then to Florence for a few days, then back down to Rome to fly home by way of Newark. And I don't know, that kind of looks silly just typing it all out. TripIt ended up being a very valuable tool. I forwarded all the various confirmation emails to it, and it did, quite honestly, a damn good job of sequencing everything into a single itinerary, which then helped me spot holes where I'd screwed up, I don't know, say a departure date or had just completely forgot about one of the trip legs. But it's all done. I leave next week, and writing and recording this episode is giving me really, quite honestly, another good excuse to put off thinking about packing. I don't know, three weeks in a carry-on has a washing machine might have been my most critical Airbnb search criteria. So following up, you've got mail. Yep, we got mail. And comments. First, let's start with two comments from the Travel Commons Facebook page. First up, Jim McDonough, who tagged the post from two episodes ago, episode 187, with his experience moving to a non-hub airport. Jim writes, We moved from a hub, DFW, seven parallel runways plus one other, to a non-hub, San Diego, one runway. Clearly, we were tied to American at DFW. Both of us are lifetime gold. And there really is no dominant carrier at San Diego. We do have some sneaky long non-stops from here, though, like to Hawaii, London, Munich, Boston, New York. None of these on American, though. We are trending toward Alaska Airlines, which is pretty good service, and Boeing airplanes. And if there's an Admirals Club around, we can use it flying Alaska. I was among the people who switched to cashback credit cards during the pandemic when no flying was happening, but I'm rethinking that position with an eye to using miles to go places. Jim, thanks for that. The American-Alaska relationship has has always been a good one for West Coast flyers. I remember years ago flying Alaska from Long Beach up the coast to San Jose. I, I could never figure out why Alaska was flying that route, but it was handy with my American status. 
Next up, Thelma Smith adding a travel tip to the post for last month's episode. Good episode. I don't travel a lot, but one thing I do is if I have to check a bag, I use a sky cap. I don't have to be lugging anything through the airport, and the cash comes in handy to tip them. Well, Thelma, thanks for that. I'm a big Skycap fan when I do have to check a bag, like when I've loaded up from a big wine country trip. And yes, cash is absolutely required for their tip. Moving to the Travel Commons website, Jeff Slater left this comment. Excellent podcast. Hey, thanks, Jeff. A very frequent traveler. I agree with everything. A quibble, however, was the advice to take a nonstop. While I don't disagree, I fly in and out of Burlington, Vermont, so that's rarely an option. So for me, I also consider my options for connecting airports. As a United Flyer, Denver in the summer when it's an option, and then Dulles and trying to avoid Newark. Getting a bit more esoteric for the non-frequent flyer, I also consider plane type. And with United 1K status, I also take advantage of the same day change to avoid weather problems. Well, Jeff, thanks for those comments. Kind of back to my pre-break episode about moving to a non-hub airport. Most of your direct flight options are to hubs like Denver and Washington Dulles. Jeff, your strategy on hub selection is smart. Pick hubs that are off by themselves with long, well-separated runways. When doing work in North Jersey many years ago, we used to joke that anyone spitting on the runway at Newark would mean an hour delay. The runways are too close together to allow parallel takeoffs and landings in all but the best of weather. Your comment about plane type, rather than esoteric, I think it's more, let's call it graduate level sort of flight planning. The first cut is regional jet versus mainline jet. I'll always pick the, I don't know, say that United Airbus 319 over the American Eagle Embraer. Making a choice between mainline jets can be a bit more subtle. Different flyers will make different trade-offs between size. Flights with a smaller capacity jet might be sacrificed when storms reduce flight slots, but they're quicker to get in and out of if delay has tightened your connection. Again, graduate-level linear programming optimization algorithms for flight planning. On Twitter, Kendra Kroll offered up a travel tip. No names of cities in the local vernacular. I'll never forget some folks on our southbound train to Rome missed their stop by several hours when they didn't realize that Firenze equals Florence. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> that's Kendra, that's a good tip. Uh, probably, again, another next-level version of my know-your-geography tip. For extra credit, be able to recognize your destination in the local non-Latin alphabet. I was in Tokyo right back before they moved the old uh, Tajiki fish market. The morning after I arrived, I was up early with jet lag and so walked over to the market. Someone had recommended a small sushi joint there, so I went looking for it. The recommendation gave the name in Latin characters, but the signs in the market were only in kanji. I eventually found a guy at an information desk who gave me directions to the place. But, you know, it's something to keep in mind when I travel to, say, I don't know, Greece or Georgia, Georgia being the country, not the state. The language is not in Latin characters. 
And finally, Aaron Woodland responded to my retweet of an O'Hare TSA post with a picture of what one passenger pulled out of their carry-on and put in the bin to pass through the x-ray machine. A meat cleaver, a couple of knives, and a couple of saws. So somebody who's definitely unclear on the concept of no sharp objects in your carry-on. Aaron's cut... What I really don't get are people who don't keep their range bag and carry-on luggage separate and end up unintentionally packing heat at the checkpoint. Look, if you can afford plane fare, gun, and ammo, you can spring for separate bags. I don't know, Aaron. Range bag, toolbox. Yeah, I can just imagine the TSA guy shaking his head as the image of a bin full of knives and saws comes across the monitor. I mean, the guy is aware enough to know that you need to pull metal stuff out of your bag, but not hip to the fact of why. And now you're the TSA guy who's got to explain it to him. Hey, thanks to everybody for these comments. Really great stuff here. I think I mentioned in prior episodes that I'm on Apple's iPhone upgrade plan. Every year I get the new phone, send in the old phone, resets the payment clock. I don't know, kind of like leasing a car, but obviously with lower monthly payments. So anyhow, a few weeks back, I was scrubbing through Apple's hour and a half long announcement video, you know, skipping all the Apple Watch stuff. I slow down on the new AirPods. Then I settle in for the iPhone 14 walkthrough. Nothing earth shattering, though I kind of like the new purple color. But then as they were wrapping up, I had a record scratch moment. No SIM tray. It's all internal eSIMs. Isn't that great? No more searching for a paper clip to pop out the tray, losing a little nano sim. Wait, no, it's not great, at least for those of us who travel internationally. I've talked many times over the years about using local sims. Most recently in episode 181, I talked about how at the start of our Puglia bike trip, I ended up spending 15 minutes and only 25 bucks in a Telecom Italia store for a sim that gave me a local phone number, which is very handy for restaurant reservations, and 77-0 gig of data for 25 bucks. And now next week, all I have to do is load some more money onto that same SIM through the Telecom Italia website, and I'm good to go when I connect through Frankfurt and when I land in Croatia and then when I spend time in Italy. But what about an eSIM? I I couldn't find any mainline Italian mobile carriers that offered prepaid eSIMs. Same with the UK. And when I bitch-tweeted about this, AlloSim, a company that sells international eSIMs or, you know, eSIMs for many countries, quickly responded, well, our Italy eSIM data packages start at $4.50 for a week of data. I hit their website. This $4.50 per week gives one gigabyte of data. For an extra 50 cents, I can get 10 times that, 10 gig of data for $5 a week, reloading that Telecom Italia SIM. So I tweeted that back, and as you might guess, no response from AlloSim's social media team. So when it's all said and done, I've dropped off the iPhone upgrade wheel. I, I Look, I know I'm an edge case, and I think that this will probably accelerate the push toward eSIMs, but like when Apple dropped the headphone jack, I think they're 12 to 18 months ahead of the curve, at least in this case for frequent international flyers, and I need something that works today where the curve is right now. So I'll wait a bit, 
like Travel Commons listener Jerry Safardi, who tweeted back, said he's waiting for the iPhone 15 with a USB-C charger. Me too, Jerry. And I got to tell you, I really hope it still comes in purple, too. And hey, if you've got any travel stories, questions, comments, tips, rants, the voice of the traveler, send them along. Comment, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at TravelCommons.com. You can send a Twitter message to M. Peacock. Post your thoughts on the Travel Commons Facebook page or the Instagram account at Travel Commons. Or you can post comments at the website at TravelCommons.com. First topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is when not to take the first flight out. So moving on to the mail portion of this episode, that's mail, (laughs) M-A-I-L. Dave, after I published the last episode, I saw an email in the Travel Commons inbox with the subject, is the first flight of the day still the best one? No. Air travel scientist for interviews. I have to tell you, this one caught my eye because the fifth of the 13 tips I just published to avoid airport chaos that I had just published was catch the earliest flight you can. So I replied to the email, tell me why I'm wrong, which led to this conversation with Dr. Sheldon Jacobson, professor of computer science at the University of Illinois. Over the years, Dr. Jacobson has done projects using operations research models to optimize aviation security, but most recently, he wrote about how the received frequent flyer wisdom about catching the first flight out might not always be right. So I started my discussion asking him, where did I get it wrong? When you're flying in and out of hub airports, conventional wisdom is in fact correct. You do want to take the first flight of the day because at a hub airport, there's a lot more flexibility once a plane arrives at the end of the day. It's going to be cleaned. It's going to be maintained. It's going to be fresh for the new day. If it turns out that some of the crew members become unavailable, you have alternatives because so many people have bases. So this is in Chicago and Dallas for American Uh, For United, you also have Washington, Dallas, as well as Chicago. For Delta, of course, it's Atlanta, Minneapolis, Detroit. So that's a great strategy. But what if you're not in a hub airport? And that's when things start to get more nuanced. And the best way to think of this is that every airplane, as well as every crew, when they fly from city to city, they are a link in a chain. At the end of the day, you think, okay, the chain ends. Actually, doesn't. It doesn't because the first flight of the day is the connection and the link from the last flight of the previous day. And all of this comes out and starts to impact that decision of the first flight of the day. Because if that flight comes in late, remember the last flight of the day, that's going to be the first flight out of a regional airport. So as a result of that, you actually want to take the second flight of the day out of a regional airport or a smaller, large airport. That's the best strategy when it comes to these secondary and tertiary airports. Actually, what you've said, I've seen that happen in smaller regional airports, say Lexington, Kentucky. Appleton, Wisconsin, where that first flight of the day is not on the ground. So it's got to come in from a hub. Is there a split where, say, larger non-hub airports, the conventional wisdom still holds? Say, where I am now in Nashville or something like in Indianapolis. Where do those fall as far as the conventional wisdom on, on catching the first flight out? 
Yeah, certainly when you come to the Nashvilles, the Indianapolis, the Columbus, Ohio's, the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania's, some of these have been dehubbed over the years, you're getting into a point that you have a lot of choices available. So then it becomes a little more nuanced because you could book the first flight on, let's say, American, and that one may have difficulties because that plane came in overnight and it was delayed because of storms in Chicago. But on the other hand, if there are options on Delta, which are coming from Atlanta, where there were not storms, you can always then get switched over for it. So when you get into those middle airports, they're not full hubs, but they're not the small regionals that have two flights a day. Then it becomes a little more nuanced. And then you start to look across airlines as opposed to just within the airline. Now, if we pivot just slightly and think about different types of airlines. So if I think about hub-centric airlines like the traditional United American Delta versus, say, a Southwest, which I've joked in the past feels like they're running a milk runs across the country. So there's no, there's not necessarily a hub, just that plane is running a line. Is there a difference between those two types of airlines on that first flight out? There is for a variety of reasons. With Southwest, they're trying to pack as many segments or links per day for every airplane. That's how they stay profitable. Their turn times are tremendous, but it also makes them more vulnerable to any kind of mechanical or weather delays or air traffic control slowdowns because they don't have the slack built into their system in their links. As a result of that, when you get to the end of the day, they still have to abide though by the FAA regulations in terms of crew rest. And the question is, even though they are in some sense a point-to-point airline, they have areas of the country that have a concentration of flights, like Mm -hmm. Dallas Love, for example, like Chicago, like Baltimore, Washington, where they traditionally had a lot of flights. So you do have to look then at, even though they aren't traditional hubs, they operate similarly. Where is the crew located? Where are they choosing to live? And that's an important component because when you're trying to reschedule because of delays, you know the flight that you're going to take out at 6 a.m. may have come from a city where the plane only arrived at midnight. The, the flight crew needs their rest. They will not be able to leave on time. But if you switch crews and you have the flexibility because you have a sufficient number of crew members, it solves the problem. Is that going to exist in your city? So even though Southwest doesn't have the traditional hub and spoke system, they have airports that in some sense act like their hubs. Sheldon, how much of this do you think is a function of the current tight labor market for uh, that, that airlines say they're operating in? Well, the situation we're in, which was brought on by COVID, of course, uh, meant that they had a tremendous amount of layoffs. And looking down the road, you know, they, they were trying to survive financially. And now they're in a situation that they have to rehire but retrain all of these pilots. People think, oh, you haven't flown for eight months, nine months. We'll just put you in a cockpit and you're fine. Doesn't work that way. Once you've been off for six months, it's as if you've never flown. Right. Uh, you still have the 1,500 hours which are required to fly, but you get rusty. And the pilots themselves say, I'm really not as comfortable as I used to be, especially on landings, which is the most critical activity that they do. Once they're in flight, it's pretty much status quo. 
taking off reasonably straightforward, but landing is the tricky part. And they just feel a little less comfortable unless they have the training. And the fact is they want to be safe as much as the passengers and the airlines want them to be safe. Uh, getting these people back in the cockpit training them, they have so many flight simulators, so much training that needs to be go through. This is a non-trivial process. Sheldon, thank you very much for that. That's very helpful. Any last thoughts, any last tips as people are looking to sort of navigate through the back end of the summer season and into holiday flying, things that you use to avoid airport chaos? Well, we've just now entered the post-summer fall travel period, and I check the numbers daily in terms of screenings at TSA checkpoints, and the numbers are starting to come down, which means that there's going to be a lot less stress and strain on the system. The airlines are starting to ramp up their schedules. I've booked some things out for later in the fall, and they're already changing the schedules, so I know that they're starting to add more flights and more opportunities for people. For the, the holiday travel season, this year, Christmas and New Year's falls on a Sunday. And that means that people are going to be traveling on Friday and Saturday. If you can travel on Thursday or Wednesday, you may find it a lot less taxing. So thinking a little bit ahead in that regard may be very helpful. Uh, you can't predict weather storms, a nor'easter going through, you know, late in the year. Uh, the other strategy that I've used, because I've mostly lived in non-hub cities, mm -hmm. is that there's always been a dominant airline and a non-dominant airline. And the strategy I've always used is to always become loyal to the non-dominant airline. And the reason being is that when the non-dominant airline had problems, they were always gracious to put you on the dominant airline, which had much more choices. And as a result, I rarely got stuck because if I was on the dominant airline, trying to find a plane on the non-dominant one was much more difficult to get that's a, available. That's an interesting strategy, kind of counterintuitive, but as you explain Very it, it makes sense. I have never gotten stuck because by flying the non-dom, even out of a hub airport, you think of a place like, uh, we'll take Detroit, uh, where they have Delta as the dominant airline. If you fly American out of there, the people are working extra hard to get your business. And as a result of that, I've always found service as better in the non-dominant airline, even in the hub cities that they're competing. That's a good tip. Thanks for that, uh, Sheldon. Dr. Sheldon Jacobson out of University of Illinois down in Champaign-Urbana. Thank you very much for joining us on the Travel Commons podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. The second topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is why we travel. Some years ago on a milestone birthday, and I'm not saying which one it is, my kids gave me the book, a Thousand Places to See Before You Die, <laughs> which kind of led me to that question, uh, is there a message here somewhere? Not that they would admit, but it was a fun book to flip through to remind me of past trips, give me ideas of places to go next. So when the Travel Commons Inbox also offered up an opportunity to interview the author, Patricia Schultz, about her new book, I jumped at it. Patricia, thanks for joining us on the Travel Commons podcast. Your new book is Why We Travel, 100 Reasons to See the World. That topic, why we travel, has been a common one here on Travel Commons. How travel expands our horizons, our perspectives, helps us connect with others and, and with ourselves as we lose ourselves in the otherness of a new place. So, Patricia, help us. What's your take on why we travel? 
Well, I used this period of the pandemic to have that conversation with myself. <laughs> this moment of COVID, you know, allowed me this unprecedented moment where suddenly I was very stationary. I thought it was very important for me as a travel writer to reassess all over again the importance of travel. But the why needs to be kept very forefront so that we have that appreciation and we understand that we're privileged and it's an honor and it's something that you need to, you know, travel meaningfully and not just on automatic pilot. And I, I think first and foremost, it's for me, it's food for my soul. And as you said, it opens our perspectives and it opens our heads. It opens our hearts. You mentioned connecting with other people. That's part of the, you know, opening your heart with that exchange with your Uber driver or your guide or the, you know, lady in the open air market that's selling her tomatoes and, you know, whoever you have that moment with. Um, it's all the people along the way that you meet and accrue and kind of collect all of these experiences that are life lessons, not just logistics and the details of trip planning, but life lessons as they pertain to what you bring home with you and how you deal with life and how you've become more resourceful. And, you know, the dailiness of life is dealt with on a different way. I know I'm more tolerant. I know I'm more respectful in general. I know that I'm more curious. And that's what gets you out the front door at the end of the day, yep. which is often usually the most difficult part of all of this getting <laughs> well, going. Patricia, the book is a, is a great mix of beautiful photos and quotes about travel. Definitely something that, you know, a book that you need to have in your hand rather than on your tablet. But it was interesting, as I was thinking about it, what was your curation process? So how did you pick the pictures and the quotes that went into the book? I'm so glad that you touched on that because I myself thought that a book that's seemingly this simplistic would just kind of write itself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that never It's never that simple, though, right? <laughs> yeah. One of the quotes I used is by Beverly Sills, the great operatic singer, who said, there are no shortcuts to any place worth going to or anything worth doing, I might add, as a mm -hmm. postscript. And, you know, <laughs> writing books is one of them. But so, you know, the, the photos, which are not mine, I'm sorry to say, but they're colorful and they're energetic and they're, you know, they're vibrant and there's, uh, you know, a great... A sense of place and excitement to them, I think. And that's what we were aiming for, to have this book, you know, everything kind of jump off the page at you, because that's part of the message, you know, the message of how exciting and exhilarating travel can be. And then to match it with the appropriate message, the message that is um, embodied in a quotation or in an aphorism or in a list that mm -hmm. I make up or in an anecdote that matches what the photograph recounts. So it all was a real departure for me because my books until now have just been a kind of encyclopedia of a thousand places around the world. But that same broad, comprehensive mix of experience and geography and um, message and importance of travel that um, I try to infuse throughout 1,000 places is the same mix that I tried to embed in every aphorism and in every photo and in the sequence of the book. It's not a big book. It's a hard-covered book. Um, it's not oversized. 
and it's not all that many pages. It's somewhere over 100 pages. But there's a lot that can be said because travel means many, many, many different things to many different people. But at the end of the day, it makes us better people, and that's kind of period, amen. (laughs) But it's certainly more focused, as you said, on inspiring people to travel, to pull their bag out from under their bed, rather than a tour guide's list of where to go or some expert's advice on how to pack that bag. But some might see this collide with the ethics, the concern about climate change. How do you square that circle? If you travel with respect and with that conviction to see the world for all the right places and not because you're checking off countries or you're filling empty time, but if you want to experience another culture and bring those experiences home with you, Ultimately, probably the best thing we can hope to take away from travel is that we return to our homes better equipped to make your best life for yourself and your neighbors and your Mm -hmm. community and the world at large. And also the very notion that travel isn't inherently international or, you know, a 12 hour long haul flight to get (laughs) you to the side of the world. You know, you can walk out your front door and, you know, walk around the block in midtown Manhattan where I live, and that's travel enough for many people. (laughs) You know, the people watching in the theater of the street or filling your car or charging your car (laughs) and taking that road trip to the local state park. So there are, you know, all kinds of ways that you can easily accommodate all of those concerns if you travel well. And I don't mean five-star deluxe, and I don't mean, you know, remote dream destinations of Mongolia and Africa, although those are all pretty fantastic as well. (laughs) Dream well in that you really maximize the time made available to you and the money that's in your budget. But I think you just need to go with the right head, and the right head to me has always meant curiosity and respect. And if that's the case, then you will travel respectfully, and you will address climate change in a way that as an individual we can. Fantastic. Well, Patricia Schultz, author of the new book, Why We Travel, 100 Reasons to See the World. Patricia, thanks for stopping by the Travel Commons podcast to give us your thoughts on on, uh, why we should travel. Really appreciate the time. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Okay, that's it. That's the end of Travel Commons podcast number 189. A little bit of a change of pace with the uh, mailbag interview. A lot less of my voice and a lot more of others. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you decide to stay subscribed. You can find us and listen to the current episodes on all the main podcast sites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music. You can also ask Alexa, Siri, or Google to play Travel Commons on your smart speakers. And while you're at TravelCommons.com, you can check out the show notes for transcript and any of the links that I've mentioned. Or you can click on the link in this episode's description in your podcast app to get to the show notes page. And if you've got a couple of minutes, how about leaving us a review on one of those sites? Or better yet, 
tell somebody about Travel Commons. Word of mouth helps us spread the podcast. If you're not subscribed, hit the website at travelcommons.com. There's a drop-down subscribe menu at the top of the page and a big red subscribe button in the middle of it. And across the bottom of each page on the website, you'll find links to the Travel Commons socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you have a story, thought, comment, gripe, the voice of the traveler, send it along. Text or audio file, comment, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at travelcommons.com and Peacock on Twitter, write them on the Travel Commons page on Facebook or Instagram, or post them on the website at travelcommons.com. Thanks to everyone who's helped me uh, put together this episode by leaving tweets, comments on the website, on the Facebook page, and uh, and even to the PR pitches uh, that I get through email. Thanks. I really do appreciate it. And so I'm off next week on that three-week hop. Hopefully I can figure out how to work the washing machine in a couple of these places. But until we talk again, travel safe. Thanks for stopping by the Travel Commons. Bye now. Bye.